Hi, I'm James Verdier, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. Today, I was very lucky to be joined by three guests for a lively discussion about race and ecology. And those guests are Dr. Karen Bailey, Assistant Professor in the Environmental Studies Program at the University of Colorado Boulder, Dr. Naima Harris, Incoming Associate Professor in the School of the Environment at Yale University and Director of the Applied Wildlife Ecology Lab, and Dr. Senayit Barak. Carolina Postdoctoral Fellow for Faculty Diversity at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Before we get into the episode, though, I wanted to draw your attention to one of the links in the show notes. It's to Dr. Bailey's podcast, which is called The Creature Connection, and it's all about exploring fictional worlds and the ways that people interact with them. I think you'll find a lot of resonance with the topics that we discussed today, and it's just a great show. So please pause this episode for a moment and go subscribe over there, and uh, we'll welcome you back in just a moment. Moving on to today's topic, our guests will be discussing the recently published article, Inclusive Sustainability Approaches in Common Pool Resources from the Perspective of Mycologists. Our guests do an excellent job of describing the article. Before we move on to that discussion, though, I want to talk very briefly about the context in which it appears. I think we're all familiar with the idea of science as a purely objective form of inquiry. Lately, though, that notion has been reconsidered, both in the pages of bioscience and elsewhere. The problem isn't necessarily you know, flawed experimental design or manipulated data, but that often when when we look at science through the lens of history, we find researchers whose identities, often as members of xenophobic and racist societies, are very much enmeshed in their work. And the results of that can often be found in things like so-called fortress conservation, in which indigenous communities have often been excluded from their traditional lands. And there's also an appalling strand of racist nativism that's deeply woven through much of the history of American environmentalism. We'll talk more about that during the episode, but I think it's important to note that much of what our guests described today is aimed at addressing that history. And so I encourage all of our listeners to explore the topic more. Uh, please check the show notes. There will be a few links. But for right now, let's go to the interview. Thank you all very much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Okay, great. So to get us started, um, I th thought we'd start talking about something that's in the title. It's a word that I was unfamiliar with, um, and it's blackologists. And Naima, maybe you can get us started with a, a little bit of a definition and explanation there of that term. Yeah, we fully recognize that's not common language. We're not going around hearing hearing the term blackologist. Um, but there are other terms that we perhaps are more familiar with. You may hear someone introduce themselves as a virologist, a person that studies viruses, or an ornithologist, a person that studies birds. Well, with us using this term blackologist, we're actually not saying um, the people that study blackness, right? That's not what we're saying. Instead, we're saying that blackness, our identities, are influencing the science, the way that we do the science, the questions that we ask, the approaches that we use, and the type of impact we aim for our science to have. Okay, and this is also reflecting, you know, the fact that other people's identities throughout the course of the history of science have also influenced the way that they conduct their work. Correct. That is this recognition of this intersectionality, that your identity and the facets, the many attributes of who you are as a scientist influence the way that you work. And despite the fact that we want to present science always as this objective um, and kind of insular narrative, the reality is that our identities, our culture, our language, our experiences, our biases all influence the science. And so we're just highlighting that as black people, that our identities and the collective experiences, some of which are shared, influence our process, again, our approach and the impact of our scholarship. The, uh, the considerations that we have to navigate and move in a certain way in the profession explicitly because of being black. 
Okay, great. And we'll talk a little more about that later. And we'll also talk about some of the history that this is, you know, against the backdrop of. Uh, but I think it makes sense now, you know, since uh, this is going to be a lot about the intersection of identity and science, um, for you all to tell us a little bit about yourselves. And I'm interested in kind of, you know, what's the guiding light? What's the driving transformational early experience that is, you know, kind of the reason why you do what you do now? Karen, why don't you get us started? Yeah, sure. Um, so I was sort of from childhood always interested in outdoors and the environment. Um, I loved animals. I loved dirt and I loved sort of existing in that space. Uh, I think like many people who have an interest in the environment, I didn't really know what career opportunities were out there. So for a while, I wanted to be a veterinarian, which is common or like yep. <laughs> Steve Irwin, right? Like that's what we saw. Um, and then I shadowed uh, two, two, uh, a dog cat bed and an equine bed, and I hated it. Like, it was miserable. Um, <laughs> and, like, both versions. Uh, and I realized that was not what I wanted to do. And I think that also speaks to the importance of figuring out what you don't like as much as the importance of figuring out what you do like. Um, and when I was in high school, I had the opportunity to uh, go to the Teton Mountain Range in Wyoming with a sort of let's take the kids from, and I'm from Los Angeles Urban Center, um, let's take kids from these urban centers to the outdoors to expose them to field ecology, essentially is what it was. And this is the Teton Science School, um, which I just actually had a chance to reconnect with one of my former instructors from there, which was really, really, really wonderful. Um, but it basically helped me to understand what field science could be and how I could be outside in nature, learning and studying and doing science and research. And so that was the path I took. There was also a, a moment later when I was doing my dissertation work where I realized I was more interested in human environment interactions and kind of the social science piece as well, um, thinking about the, those relationships with the environment as well. So yeah, that's sort of my trajectory. So I'll chime in since we have a similar narrative and, and of course I think um, seeing these kind of representation, the representation on television shows, not seeing myself represented, um, so not really necessarily thinking that it was something I could do even though it was something that I liked and was inherently and kind of innately passionate about. Lots of kids grow up liking animals, even city folks like myself from, from Philadelphia. Um, but my transformative experience came through an internship program at the Philadelphia Zoo where I got to go to Kenya um, when I was in ninth grade. And so all these animals that I saw on TV and actually being there and, and witnessing and seeing lions hunt um, I said, whatever this is called, this is what I <laughs> this is what I want to be. Um, I didn't really know the concepts of conservation biology or wildlife. I just knew that it wasn't a vet and it wasn't a zookeeper. It was outside in nature studying, right? And so I just said, as I was growing up, I wanted to be a scientist, and that was the the extent of it. Makes sense, Senai. Yeah, I, I think for me that there have been various uh, formative experiences. Uh, some that are more direct and others that are a, a bit indirect. I'll start with the indirect part. I think, you know, when I, th when I think of science, I, I think of storytelling, and I think storytelling was very much a part of my, my family. I actually grew up in the, the Netherlands, something you probably wouldn't expect. Um, my, my family's originally from uh, Eritrea and, and East Africa. And uh, so there, there is a, an, an East African community in the Netherlands, and oftentimes they would gather together and tell each other stories about you know where they grew up which village uh, which corner of the city um, and a lot of times I was fascinated listening to their stories and 
uh, and also sort of their insights of you know how certain things came came about and effectively their analysis about situations in in the region um and and sort of related to that i was a big fan i don't know if any of you remember the the show colombo which was a detective series <laughs> i used to watch it in the netherlands but i was always fascinated by colombo because you know he was wearing this old looking raggy you know raincoat and he was trying to solve this uh, this mystery, uh, oftentimes involving lots of uh, rich people, uh, but he always kind of looked a bit, um, you know, for for a lack of a better word, a little bit stupid, a little bit dumb, so to speak. And they always thought they, you know, they were clever than Columbo. But by the end of the series, you would always realize that he was solving the 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 puzzle, the the the, the you know the murder mystery. And there was something about that process, even though at the time I wasn't thinking about you know being a scientist and the sort of profession of scientist. When I reflect back on it, I do sort of think of, you know, that role of a, a lot of that, you know, a lot of the work that we do is asking these big questions. Oftentimes, you know, we don't quite expect to resolve them, but it's really that process that's exciting um, and, and, and trying to uh, appear a little bit uh, confused at times uh, uh, that, uh, that could possibly result into, you know, finding or unlocking the mystery. Uh, so I think for me, it's those two processes that uh, have sort of indirectly affect, affected my interest in science. But I think, um, you know, when I uh, when I moved to the United States and I started off at a community college, uh, I, I sort of got taking courses and interacting with uh, professors at the community college. I got sort of excited about, uh, about science because it kind of reflected this storytelling process. Um, and then later on, as an undergraduate and, and graduate student, I had the opportunity to uh, do ecology and travel to uh, mostly South America and, and, and firsthand experience uh, what, what an ecologist or what a scientist actually does in the field. So I think that the combination of those experiences uh, have got me where I am today. Thank you all very much. And, you know, I think that's a great point about you know storytelling, and I also like the the detective element as well. Um, that's a that's a structure I'm definitely going to borrow and uh, include in my writing course uh, because I think that's I think that's an interesting way of thinking about you know the um, the work that scientists do. Um, let's move on and talk a little bit about you know the article and maybe just run through a couple of terms um, that I think you know our, our listeners will appreciate having a little bit of uh, perspective on. They're familiar, but they're not perhaps you know familiar uh, necessarily in this context. So, you know, talking about things like, um, you know, tragedies of the commons and common pool resource. Um, and I was hoping you could give us a little bit of a, an overview of those and kind of how those relate to, you know, ecology and conservation. So maybe just to start, I think generally common pool resources are, are considered resources that are widely available in the landscape, usually uh, in on large areas, large regional areas, perhaps, and they're difficult to exclude people from accessing. And so that's often what makes them common um, in, in terms of being accessible by a lot of people and hard to keep others out. Um, and so that makes them challenging to manage and can potentially lead to the tragedy of the commons. Yeah, and 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 to, to add to it to, to what Karen said, that part of the idea is that you know these are renewable resources and that they have to be shared or governed in some way. So when we think of forest or fisheries or uh, timber and so forth, uh, a, a part of the challenge is to preserve them. And and if we kind of go back uh, back to the '60s, that is. Uh, uh, one of the sort of dominant ideas at the time, uh, which was 
posited by Garrett Hardin, an American ecologist, was that uh, uh, the, you know individuals are by by their very nature selfish, and that the overuse of some of these resources that Karen described uh, can lead to the tragedy uh, of, of the commons. Um, and, and that narrative has has changed over the the decades. Um, and, and, and I'm particularly thinking of the, the 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 Nobel Prize winner Eleanor Ostrom for showing that um, you know communities, local communities, uh, be they fishers or small farmers, uh, can actually sustain those resources in in their com community, and and uh, consequently um, uh, reverse that 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 tragedy. So. Um, and, and and I think what's what's really um, uh, in, in 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 our piece, what's been really uh, nice to see is is kind of the work that both Karen and Naima have done in the field, um, you know, working with communities in in various contexts to to try to you know uh, decipher how to uh, how communities actually uh, persist and sustain. Uh, their resources, and I and I think this this piece is adding to uh, kind of that tradition that that counters the Hardin's narrative. Yeah, and I think that you know is an interesting point that conservation biology has to reckon with that you know kind of one of its foundational ideas um, is this notion that local communities may not be able to or are suspected of not being able to live in accord with the resources that are available to them. Um, and, you know, that obviously has problems both for the communities and for the practice of conservation itself. Uh, how has that played out over time, you know, that failure to, you know, elevate those communities that have been managing these resources since time immemorial? So I'll jump in here and say that um, one of our central practices in conservation biology is centered around the creation the establishment and the management of protected areas. And by even the provisioning of, of protected areas, there's been displacement, right? Um, and there's a an acknowledgement that a Eurocentric approach um, is practically and substantially better in sustaining the resources than traditional ecological knowledges in, in these geographies that we're talking about. I think there's an increased recognition that these are not mutually exclusive, that when we're talking about how communities are using resources and what does things look like from a subsistence perspective versus commodifying or commercial or grand scale um, extraction, um, that those are not the same types of impact. Those are not the same types of technologies and degradation that, that happens in using the resources, right? So protected areas create this, this narrative of um, prohibitive action and prohibitive activities under this kind of misconception that that's what's best for, for the sustainability of, of the system and of the resources. And I think that we're continuing to challenge some of that narrative and others as well, recognizing that there are scales of impact and scales of use and an integration and that there that protected areas are these coupled human natural ecosystems. And we have to manage and think inclusively both about the people dimension as well as the wildlife dimension. 
Okay, and I'm going to jump in for a second and do something that's uh, you know abjectly evil, which is pitch my own podcast. Um, and we had a, I think uh, this is reminding me a lot of an episode we did a couple ago about uh, you know indigenous management of a salmon fishery in um, you know the North American Northwest. And the idea that I heard that episode. You did. I'm glad. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, and it, it, but it seems to speak to exactly this kind of thing, you know, where you have, um, you know, the pop, the salmon resources managed over millennia as a, you know, subsistence based resource that everybody does fine. But when, you know, you have the introduction of a commodification process and uh, then all of a sudden everything goes completely different and, you know, you, you lose the salmon and now it's only now that they're starting to get back to, you know, using some of those traditional techniques that you, you know, you kind of see a, perhaps a light at the end of the tunnel. The other thing I'll just quickly mention on this topic that I think is really important is that um, in this narrative, we've also kind of criminalized the activities of, of communities and using resources that they have traditionally used or have different kinds of um, spiritual or cultural significance, which again, introduces these biases, introduces racist practices and, and white su supremacy ideologies that their way is wrong and other people's ways are, are right. Um, and that complicates the, the process as well. Yeah, because it sounds like a lot of the time those who are, you know, kind of doing the you know, intellectual work around conservation, we're also coming at it from a perspective of, you know, uh, pristine wildlife must be protected. Um, and, you know, anything having to do with people interacting with that wildlife was, you know, not acceptable. And so it, it, it criminalized a lot of activities. I think, Karen, can you tell us a little bit about the effects of protected areas on communities and, and how those can be, you know, uh, deleterious or challenging um, and, you know, kind of some of the, the ways that those can introduce some trouble? Yeah, I think so. One one really important piece is the way in which that criminalization of certain interactions and this idealized version of nature and wilderness and the environment as separate from people it creates a narrow view of the ways in which we are allowed to interact with nature, right? We can just go and look at, for example, as opposed to interact with or live on or, or be culturally or spiritually connected to. Uh, and so it, it limits um, the, the conceptualization of what nature and wilderness is and our ability to, to build meaningful relationships uh, with nature and the environment as well, which I think can be profoundly damaging <laughs> to our sort of self-actualization and, and, and um, cultural and spiritual growth. Uh, it also really displaces potentially the costs and benefits of wildlife and uh, nature and conservation. Uh, and so it potentially makes it so people in the global community have all of these large carnivores, for example, that exist and are happy and are surviving. But people who have lived next door or who are from cultures and communities who have lived next door and shared the landscape with these people for centuries, millennia, um, now are only getting the costs of living uh, near those communities as opposed to any potential benefits from living near those wildlife communities. Um, so I think those are two some sort of different negative outcomes, but really important and critical ones. And, and also, you know, I, I, one thing mentioned in the article that um, seems maybe worth mentioning is that when you criminalize in these activities, um, you know, of, of interacting with a protected area, a lot of times there's not even the resources to enforce that anyway. Right. Yeah, we've seen so much evidence about not only the sort of negative social and economic and cultural impacts of fortress conservation, to use that term, but also the fact that it doesn't necessarily achieve the conservation outcomes of interest because we don't have the resources to actually monitor and manage as we would like to. So I think it's it doesn't necessarily work for a multitude of reasons. 
Okay, so you know we've we've got this you know I think model described a little bit of, of the, some of the ways that conservation can be ineffective and it can come from you know a perspective that's um, you know not beneficial to the people um, you know who live there. It's not beneficial to you know really anybody uh, because it's ineffective anyhow. You know what are some ways that potentially things could be done better? You know what how can conservation work in a way that accords with the well-being of the people who are, you know, on those landscapes and is actually has the potential to be more effective. How much time do we have to go over these recommendations? Uh, <laughs> we're going to solve all the world's problems in the next 24 there, minutes. There yeah. are a lot okay. because we're make, we have to make the distinction between like conservation science as, as the practice versus the science, right? Versus the, the scholarship, the way that, that researchers are approaching conservation in different regions of the world. And so what does models of co-production look like in terms of the research questions that even get asked? Are we doing the science that people want and will actually benefit from, right? And so that requires a different shift in our approaches to even doing our science. Um, the other dimension of that then is who gets to then manage, implement um, the practices to ensure that the benefits are equitably distributed across the community right now. So now we have co-management kinds of scenarios that also have to get implemented so that the values and the priorities of communities are explicitly considered in, in the design. So I think that there's two tracks that we have to explicitly consider and recognize the distinction and that both of those need to be happening. Okay, and how does that kind of shake out in, in a you know in say an example, um, you know is this what's what does collaboration with you know um, a local community look like in sort of a, a practical sense? Is it you know scientists on the ground during a field season? You know is it law enforcement? How does one actually negotiate all of that stuff? You know, I think you know for people like me who are not scientists and certainly not uh, involved in you know kind of local administration of any sort, what does that actually you know kind of mean in a real sense and you know kind of on the ground? I think Karen has quite a bit of experience with, with this as, as, as well. But I will say that paying a technician or field staff $2 a day is not part of it, right? That's, that's not going to work. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, well, I think, I, I think it's important to kind of acknowledge that part of the solution is recognizing the, the entire system within which Western science operates is um, is extractive, right? So it's historically been go into a place, take knowledge, steal knowledge, potentially have negative impacts on local communities, um, and leave and go and do something great with it that benefits you and not necessarily them. And even when we think about the timescales on which our research operates, for example, the duration of a master's, the duration of a PhD, the duration of, of an NSF grant, it's not sufficient. None of those timeframes are sufficient for building meaningful relationships with local communities where you can be of service, um, which is sort of my ultimate goal. So I think it's just important to kind of lay out from the outset where we're coming from a system that is that has some serious problems in, in terms of doing this effectively. Um, but I do think entering as, as someone who, uh, certainly in the context of working in low and middle income countries, um, where I have historically done my research in Southern and East Africa, is coming in um, with an eye towards service. I have resources, I have skills, I have expertise to use a term I don't love, um, but how can I serve your community, your landscape and your needs? 
And so that, um, the, to, you know, the, use the language that was brought up earlier, is thinking about knowledge co-production co and research co-production, developing research projects that are responsive to local needs and that are building capacity, that are training scientists to continue to do the work, um, that are building communities and community resources and getting community engagement and empowerment in the process of doing the science as well. Um, which, which does require us to invest in a significant amount of consultation which is yes. generally not our like ivory tower model, right? It's I'm brilliant, I have this grand idea and let me wave carrots of money and resources and technology and they give me permission to do what I wanna do, right? Changing that and, and even thinking about co-production means that you have to go into places that are unfamiliar as an observer, as a listener, as a partner, right? But you have to consult all through the process. And generally that's not how we, we're trained with these social skills, with these communication skills, with these negotiation skills. That's not the way that science generally approaches the system. And so we do have to rethink um, what does points of entry look like to ensure that we are, again, equitably distributing benefits and resources and really as a partner, right? It is not me, um, spearheading or championing or leading every single dimension, right? I'm relying on the expertise that's there and I need their help too, right? There's, there's an exchange that has to happen. But if we're not going in with that philosophy, um, the, the product that we produced is going to be biased, inequitable, unjust, et cetera. Yeah, and I would imagine that because this isn't a part of the traditional model of the way that you know Western science has been conducted, you'd have to create a lot of this on the fly as you were working as well. I, I would add uh, one thing in addition to all the all the brilliant things that, that have been said. I think there's also something uh, fundamental to this, the, the scientific process as well, because it, this leads to questions of who gets to do science, who, who gets to, uh, I think Naima likes to, uh, her lab is called the awe lab, if I'm not mistaken. Who gets to be in awe of you know the the processes around us. Who, uh, who's allowed to ask questions? And I think, um, you know, by by essentially excluding f folks from 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 the process of doing science, because you know I think we all believe that everyone is gen genuinely interested in how the the world operates and is curious and and so forth. But only a sliver of the population is is uh, allowed to exercise that formally. Uh, uh, by, for example, working in the institutions that uh, that uh, that we are uh, in, and and I think uh, part of this idea of bringing in more people, um, local communities, is is to also extend uh, that um, you know the joy of 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 uh, of what got us here uh, to to begin with. So uh, and 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 I think by taking that away, we're also doing. Uh, not only the service to uh, those communities in question, but also to this thing that we are, you know, all fascinated by science. No, that's a great point. And, um, and Senna, I'm also wondering about, um, of course, you know, in looking at all of this, we have to look at uh, the backdrop against which it all occurs. Um, and, you know, that is in many senses that we have a very rapidly changing world, you know, in a, a very real physical sense with, you know, climate change. You know, we've seen in this past 18 months or so, um, you know, the emergence of, of a disease that is, you know, kind of changed everything about our lives. Um, you know, what's kind of the, what's kind of the role of, 
you know, disease and this, uh, you know, this, this backdrop and, you know, increasing spillover of zoonotic illnesses, um, you know, kind of how does all of that play into, you know, what you've been talking about so far today? Uh, yeah, I, th I think one, one key element that uh, un unites us all together uh, where, wherever we are in the world is, is uh, how interconnected we are. And, and we're seeing that with uh, the spread of infectious diseases. Uh, today, it's, it's, it's COVID, and, but it has been influenza, it has been SARS, et cetera, in, in the past. Um, and what we're now facing with, with global change, uh, be the result of climate change or uh, urbanization or the, the increasing contact between uh, humans and wildlife is, is that you have these uh, pathogens, oftentimes zoonotic, that are uh, spilling over and the sort of intermediate host oftentimes are domestic animals. Uh, and so by, by getting into closer contact and now because we're interconnected through, um, through, fly, uh, through airplanes from one continent to another, we're, we're, we're sort of exacerbating this process. But I think at the heart of this is, is, is how human activities uh, uh, lar largely driven by uh, these sort of economic interests that are, uh, you know, that are expanding agriculture. If you look today at places like Brazil or, or, or Indonesia, uh, where we're having, uh, uh, you know, producing uh, monocrops, mono which is a, a, another form where diseases can expand or uh, in, in, in other cases where you have close contact um, with, um, with wildlife because of, um, you know, forest patches that get cleared uh, in, in rainforest. Uh, we're seeing the, the continued um, outbreaks of some of these infectious diseases. Uh, and it's, it's not only the, the ecology that's driving that, but it's also the evolution. And so you, you have this feedback between the ecology and evolution, which is creating these variants that we're now dealing with. Um, and, you know, I, I think we're, we're seeing now that massive investment is necessary, not only in the United States and say Europe, but the, uh, the rest of the world. And, and that has been lagging. So when we think of vaccine distribution uh, or any other type of control measures, uh, you know, we're seeing inequities in those processes as well. And, and obviously the, the, the groups that are uh, bearing the brunt, uh, uh, black and Latino communities here in, in the United States, and, and of course, you know, throughout the Africa and Latin America and Southeast Asia, we're seeing the effects on, on vulnerable communities in those places. And, um, and, and, you know, and, and oftentimes it's, you know, the, the people that suffer the most that, that, um, that didn't, uh, you know, by all measure contribute the most to it. Okay, and on the disease front, you know, why don't we talk a little bit about an example where things have been done in a slightly more equitable way? Um, so, Senai, can you tell us a little bit about the Baltimore Mosquito Project? Yeah, the Baltimore Mosquito Study is a very uh, innovative uh, program, a partnership between the Cary Institute, the City of Baltimore, and the Forest Service, where local community members are engaged in understanding uh, disease outbreaks pertaining to mosquitoes. Uh, and in this partnership, local communities engage with the ecologists to try to understand both the mosquito in, uh, ecology uh, as well as uh, very important urban features that have resulted in uh, those outbreaks. So we can think of, for example, the, the history of, of zoning and redlining in Baltimore, as well as uh, uh, monetary uh, divestment and segregation of communities as a result of um, 
of highways that were placed in, in predominantly black communities. And so by bringing in local communities and bringing in their local, uh, their stories and their experiences and their narratives, uh, we can present the fuller picture of the relationship between these coupled and human environmental interaction and hope to resolve um, outbreaks, disease outbreaks uh, in relation to mosquitoes in the city of Baltimore. Yeah, and so I think uh, Sinaida types of environmental justice projects and coupled human natural and socioecological systems projects that are explicitly looking at some of the historical injustices that have led to differences in environmental um, patterns and trends and ecological changes uh, is something that I experienced both in a domestic and international setting and linked to my earlier when I was talking about my sort of transition and, and my trajectory to where I am now. I went from being sort of a pure traditional ecologist to being a social scientist because I was trapping rodents and doing ecological research in Southern Africa during the midst of a severe drought. And while people were starving and I was asking them about rats and they were like, what are you doing? Um, but really what happened is I, I sort of uh, recognized that the, the same systems that lead to uh, negative climate change and the negative impacts that communities who didn't cause climate change are experiencing disproportionately um, are linked to environmental degradation and are linked to issues of environmental justice domestically uh, and are linked to the experiences that I've had growing up in, in South Central Los Angeles and that my mom had growing up in um, Tennessee in the 60s. Uh, and so it was this shift to kind of understanding that environmental justice issues are happening at a global scale and locally affecting my communities and um, was this desire to kind of take a, uh, a human environment approach to the system as opposed to the ecological approach, which is what I essentially had been trained and learned about for the entirety of my academic life up to that point. Um, so I, I think it just kind of links to the importance of that embodiment and seeing yourselves and your communities in that work and recognizing the injustices that have occurred that have both social and environmental impacts. Yeah, and I think I'm really getting the sense that, you know, kind of the overwhelming theme here is that, you know, if you don't take everything into consideration, um, you wind up with some significant shortcomings. But let's shift gears just a little bit and talk about funding, because obviously that is an important element of all of this. And it kind of, you know, determines where the rubber meets the road in terms of what science gets done. And, you know, uh, researchers such as yourselves have typically not been the recipients of uh, funding at the scales that others potentially have. So I was hoping you could talk just a little bit about, you know, funding, the shortcomings, uh, what should be done better, and those types of issues. Yeah, I think I think one important factor that was highlighted by both Karen and, and Naima is, is that uh, there, there is lack of funding uh, for both, uh, you know, true conservation efforts, but we're also seeing that uh, more recently with, with, with infectious diseases. So there have been this, um, there has been a study by the, by the NIH basically showing that black scientists receive uh, less funding than their uh, white counterparts. Uh, this is predominantly, uh, the study is predominantly conducted among uh, biomedical scientists, but we can kind of assume, uh, assume that that will extend beyond uh, the, uh, that domain. And, and what we're seeing is that um, one of the, the, the key factors is the systemic, uh, bias, systemic racism, frankly, that, uh, you know, the way uh, research is funded and uh, the types of research that is funded uh, really biases uh, black scientists, particularly those that uh, uh, propose to do some sort of community interventions in, in, in local communities. And, and of course, we know that it's oftentimes the preventative measures that can actually help uh, communities rather than after, after the fact. 
And I think it, it, it also has a big impact on, on working scientists because, you know, the, the way the, the system works is that if, if you don't have a grant, then you basically can't really pursue your, your research and there are all kinds of considerations for, for keeping your job. So it not only, um, it not only impacts, it not only has an impact on local communities, but also has an impact on, on working scientists. And, and, you know, some of the things that have been proposed to mitigate the, you know, training courses for systemic bias and so forth, I, I, I frankly don't think are sufficient enough. I think we need to go to a model that now that we know what the problem is, we actually, you know, uh, uh, should focus on finding a solution. I think one of the solutions is, is to fund black scientists uh, directly for, for, for their work. Um, you know, and, and we can think of different kinds of models of how that would take place, but we know that black scientists um, are not funded uh, at the same rate that, that the you know, other groups are funded. Uh, and so I think in order to address this, I think we, we have to uh, fund those scientists and bring in more scientists, because uh, we're only talking about those that are professional scientists, but you know, we also have to think about the, 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 the future scientists that are coming. And, and if, we, if we don't deal with it now, then the, you know, this will have uh, perpetuating effects down the road. Yeah, when we look at, I mean, we mentioned NIH, we can also look at NSF, who um, hasn't been forthcoming with said information. Um, and when questioned and kind of asked about it, um, there's, you know, questions or issues around reporting or, right, uh, collecting the demographic information. So we kind of can't make the assessments. But the reality is that the expectations are, are the same and that Black scientists are, are less funded, likely, in, in NSF as well. And we know that NSF has programs at the postdoctoral level for broadening participation, right? I got one of those awards as a postdoc. Um, and when I became a faculty, I was like, all right, where's the broadening participation award NSF for at the faculty level? And I certainly <laughs> didn't find it. Maybe it's there, but I don't see it. And so keeping the uh, acknowledgement that there are different funding mechanisms that need to be in place in order to support um, black scientists, again, from this blackologist perspective, because we're fundamentally highlighting that the way that we're going to do our research, the types of questions that we're going to ask, the intersectionality between our identity and the science is going to be there, which means, yes, that represents a different funding stream that may not be um, that may not be consistent with the current paradigm and require some expansion and broadening and, and innovation. The same part or the, the additional component to that is the reviewers, right? So who's actually making the decisions, right? The program officers, et cetera, but they're taking recommendations from a review panel. Um, the same thing with the publications, right? There's a review process that determines what makes it through the shiny pearly gates and what doesn't, right? And so where are our voices heard and elevated? Where is our science and intellectual merit celebrated? Means that our peers, again, have to recognize the intellectual merit of our work. And given the biases and the racism that exists, those barriers remain extremely pronounced that require the scrutiny and require a process literally of dismantling. And I would say related to that, I think, um, a key kind of soapbox that I've been on lately is, is the importance of bringing humanity into our science, 
importance of the narratives and the stories of scientists and recognizing these intersections between uh, identity, society, and science. And, and I, I think linking that and um, encouraging review panels, encouraging reviewers, encouraging funders to amplify work that does make those links explicit. Again, pushing back on the historical framework that has attempted to disembody science, which doesn't make any sense uh, to make it completely separate from the scientists um, to, to strengthen uh, funding streams for folks who are thinking about that intersection and that embodiment of science as well is really important. Yeah, so it really sounds like you're working against a lot of, you know, um, entrenched bias and in, in, entrenched practice, and um, you know, possibly, you know, the ways through that are by building some systems that are will address it, and also by encouraging those who are at funding agencies and and working on review as well to take the kinds of things that you're saying into consideration. Yeah, and I, I think I would add to, to to what has been said is that, you know, this is also an opportunity. I think. Um, for, for us scientists, broadly speaking, to, to, to organize ourselves, you know, in, in the sense of, of, of being inside of, the, of those institutions, because if we're not inside of them, the decision-making is not going to change. Uh, and I think one outcome that, you know, that I've enjoyed is, is um, our, uh, our, our organization that we all co-founded, the Black Ecologist Section, which uh, is a lot of what spurred this, this, this article within the Professional Society of uh, the Ecological Society of America is is that you know we all came together uh, realizing what the gaps were uh, and how it um, uh, was uh, you know posing uh, essentially a, a threat to, to to our existence and I, by organizing ourselves we you know we have attempted to address some of these issues within our own society and I think if we hadn't come together as a group. Um, uh, People wouldn't have listened, you know, uh, and 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 I think uh, oftentimes we see, you know, uh, there's this mentality of these courageous individuals, but I think, uh, you know, those are exactly the situations where institutions can shun those individuals, and what we have to do collectively is, is come together and and um, and and organize ourselves to 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 change the 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 course. And I were under threat. We're an endangered species here. <laughs> Sorry. No, um, no. I think that's I, th- I think that's really well put. And um, and I'm wondering now, you know, let's let's talk a little bit about um, you know what's next for this work. So I, th- I think we've got a great overview of um, you know some of the the key points that you've made in the article, and and I think our, our listeners will have learned a lot. Uh, but but what's next? What are the next steps? Uh, what are you working on right now? What can we look forward to? So, so we recognize the, the process of dismantling some of these biases in the context of the funding cycles and evaluative processes, et cetera. We also recognize that, that it exists in a publishing context, that, that publishing is very much a part, and especially in an academic setting, of our evaluations and merit raises and promotions, et cetera, and that there's a, a substantial amount of gatekeeping um, and and challenges when it comes to, to black voices again being presented and elevated and so certainly having um, you know editors and bioscience etc being willing to to elevate our voices um, but we need that not to be one-offs we need it to be a substantial cultural shift and that that's expected that black voices black excellence black scholars 
are elevated in every issue, in every journal across the board. And so we are working on what we're calling a, a blackout across the Ecological Society of America journals, where we are coordinating a special feature across multiple of, of their journals that are promoting black scientists, either as the first author or the senior author. And so we are working really hard um, to put that together and um, really, again, celebrate celebrate the contributions that we're making, that certainly black scientists are here, we are here to stay, but it requires some extra work. And so that's one of the initiatives that we're working on now and really excited about. Yeah, I, I'm excited to be a part of that effort. Um, I'm excited to try and embed this goal of infusing humanity, of embodying the whole person in the research that I do and the way that I work with students as well. Um, and then also, again, thinking about the systems within which we operate uh, academic institutions, uh, more informal kind of ecological training settings and thinking about what the experiences are for students, for scholars in those spaces and how we can improve them to support retention and longevity in this field for these people who bring in this perspective that's relevant, that is intersectional, that is just, that is equitable, or at least considering justice and equity in a way that our science hasn't historically. So that's a lot of what I'm thinking about um, in my future efforts. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'll just add, in, in addition to uh, what was said about the blackout, blackout issue, I'm, I'm very uh, excited to, to be collaborating with uh, Professor Matthew McCary uh, at Rice University and also one of the co-authors of our uh, paper uh, on this issue uh, linking um, uh, infectious diseases with um, particular linkages to urban communities. And so uh, very much looking forward to, to, to having that come out uh, in, in the future. I also want to shout out our other co-authors, Shakara Tyler and uh, Jeremy Strickland, um, uh, who have done a phenomenal job. Um, and the last thing I'll say, and this kind of relates to, to the point uh, Karen made, is that uh, one of my ambitions sort of in the long term is to try to bring in everyone, you know, kind of, if we think of as, as a jazz orchestra, you know, you got the trumpet player, the saxophone, the... I'm know, the cello. The cello, the drummer, you know, and, and all of them, you know, create that beautiful sound, right? And, and that's part of the, the, this... this the, the, the great black experience that, that brought us this American music. And I think in a similar vein, we can do the same thing for, for scientists. So whether it's the, the you know, custodian down the hall, the, 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 security, the security guard, the brother, you know, standing at, at, at the door, you know, can we bring those folks in uh, through our storytelling? Uh, because I believe irrespective of, uh, you know, our, 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 our social and economic positions in life. I think everyone is curious. Everyone has a yearning for, for knowledge uh, and, and creativity. So, so bringing those folks in uh, is, is a, a, a sort of a mission that I, that I have um, uh, 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 for myself. So. so now you have such an amazing gift about making science come alive. <laughs> in the analogies that you use as you were explaining this orchestra I'm like okay yeah because then you have this section and we got to focus on tuning this section first in order to get to harmony with this section like I, I loved it I, I, I literally came alive 
thank you. I, I wish I wish I did more of my practicing of scales, though. I, I should be doing a little bit more of that, but that's a whole other issue. My my music teacher won't be happy with with that. But anyways. <laughs> Great, thank you very much, and and I, I appreciate your um, inviting me into this conversation. Um, I think we've covered a lot of, of great ground, and um, I, I look forward to seeing what's next. And I hope you'll uh, all come back and talk to me again one of these days. Thank you very much for joining me. Look forward to it. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you, James. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder: the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences, and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.